to talk about the ecology of infection and nutrition today. So the first thing that I want to say is that this talk, which is about undernutrition, and the next talk, which is about obesity, is about predispositions. That is, you can't consider these things to be diseases in, the, in their own right, but what you can do is think about them as <clears throat> so synergistically involved in the process of, of, of infection um, that it's impossible to, to ignore it. So we're just dealing with undernutrition, immunodeficiency today, but just be aware that on the other end of the scale, one of the reasons why obesity is seen as a health problem, as a, as a, as a, a, a predisposition to, uh, to chronic disease, is largely through its role in inflammation, in inflammatory processes that are linked to a whole range of chronic diseases. So, I'm going to go through the background and some history in respect of the relationships between undernutrition and infection. I'm going to talk briefly about these two medicalized conditions called marasmus and quashiorcor. Then I'm going to talk about the importance of the life course in thinking about these relationships. Because we often think about young kids getting ill, um, the predisposition to becoming ill is because they're undernourished, and well, what happens after five years? You know, we focus on an age band, but actually people live in society, <coughs> they live in communities, there are relationships going on in the middle of all of this. And then finally, I'm going to take an excuse, an old man's excuse, for showing some pictures from Bangladesh and Nepal. So, and in the middle there'll be some pictures from, uh, yeah, from Papua New Guinea. Okay. So the starting point is that when one takes a broad sweep, the World Bank, World Health Organization, talk about the dual burden of disease, that in low-income countries there is both communicable disease and chronic disease side by side. And in most other countries, chronic diseases have overtaken the infectious diseases, that infectious disease is predominantly a thing of low-income countries, except that the world is connected. And what happens over there can happen over here. The world is connected in a way it never was. So we can talk about a, a dual burden of disease. And there's also been discussion about a dual burden of undernutrition and overnutrition. Um, this, is, this is on the reading list, the paper by Corsi et al. that questions that this is a universal thing, that it's a particular thing in history, in time and place, and it's been examined in particular <coughs> countries like China, <coughs> India, South Africa, Vietnam, and clearly shown to be there, but argued that this may be a transitional thing, that they can move through this dual burden. But in the meantime, they're caught in this problem of both having to deal, in the case of Bangladesh, with, with undernutrition, and at the same time, type 2 diabetes, which is emerging as this rapidly you know, problematic thing uh, that is consuming huge amounts of, of, of health resources. So we go to Dhaka in Bangladesh, and they have one of, you know, a very sophisticated, very modern diabetes hospital. Calcutta has one as well. In the middle, surrounded 
by poverty, shanty towns, poor people who are suffering from undernutrition. Cheap by jowl, these two things side by side. So undernutrition, overnutrition, chronic disease, infectious disease, a mixed pattern. But I'm going to be dealing predominantly, overwhelmingly, with the bottom end of this. Low calorie countries are a good place to start. Where are the places in the world where calorie intake is less than 2,000 calories? And we can see that across much of Africa, parts of Latin America, across South Asia, uh, the, the, and Papua New Guinea, these are countries that have very low uh, uh, calorie intakes, low daily energy intakes. Most of the food security discourse has been around calories, has been around energy. And only more recently has it started to engage with quality. I'll talk more about this next term, but uh, where there are small numbers of calories, there are also small amounts of micronutrients. Then in thinking about undernutrition and predispositions to infectious disease, it's not just about low calorie intake, it's about deficiencies of things like vitamin A, vitamin B1, vitamin B2, niacin, vitamin B3, we don't even think about very much these days, vitamin C and a whole range of other things. This is just to show how long it takes to deplete these different vitamins. Vitamin A is problematic in that if you have a liver store, it's fat soluble, if you have a, a store of it in your body, then you can keep it for the seasons when you don't have it in your intake. So, again, in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, you have mango season. I was once in this embarrassing situation where I came back to Heathrow with seven different varieties of mango from Dhaka, where people insisted, you have to take some of these, you have to take some of these, you have to take some of these, oh, and these, and these, and these, because you just can't get them in your country. You really are not well off in your country. You cannot get these kinds of mangoes. So a big bag of mangoes, border agency, didn't catch me with these mangoes. I brought them home, and it was absolutely stunningly delicious. But during mango season, pro-vitamin A, beta-carotene, high levels of vitamin A intake can happen at that time of year. And that is something that can be stored on the body for, uh, uh, for, for, for future times when there's very little vitamin A. Vitamin A is a major problem in South Asia, and it's stratified by social status. So very poor people have very little possibility of getting high dietary quality. I've been to places in Bangladesh where people struggle to put lentils with their rice, leave alone thinking about anything else. And I was on one tea plantation where the plantation workers could afford rice, just about, and they would make their rice flavoursome by flipping up old tea leaves on top of it. That's as bad as it can get. And it can get even worse when, when, when food can't be assured across the, across the whole year. When one looks at the major causes of under, under five mortality in so-called developing countries. You get the usual range of suspects. The things that kill people at that age, under five, are infectious diseases, acute respiratory infections, coughs, colds, diarrheal disease, perinatal mortality, that is children who are born soon after, who, who die soon after they're born. 
measles, malaria, and HIV. All of these are associated with undernutrition. <coughs> Every single one of those has a, has a correlate with uh, undernutrition. So undernutrition is a major uh, predisposing factor. So the history of nutrition-infection interactions. You could probably go and look at Chaucer. You could probably go and read Dante, and you will find some reference to an absence of food and starvation somewhere. The history of undernutrition and infection is very, very long. One of the, what's one of the classical modes of warfare? Oh, yeah. Yeah, siege, which is that. What they said. What they said. Sorry. What is siege? Siege is absolutely the yeah. right word. You lock off a city and then you just starve people. And if you really want to finish people off, you catapult in dead, rotting animals to just get the process fermenting a little bit so that people don't have enough food. They are on the point of starvation, and then you introduce infections. And then you just have to stay there, and they, they will die. Siege still carries on to the present day. It's uh, a well-tried, well-known. So even if there was no science behind it, there was an observational <coughs> science, which was that you could starve people out. And goodness me, a place like Italy had hundreds and hundreds of years of sieges of one city-state upon another city-state. The kind of disharmony that happens in Italy now is nothing compared to, to how, it was, uh, how it was in the past. So, war, starvation, and infection. If we move as far as 1918 and to the end of World War I, because now we're all commemorating World War I, at least in this country. Who's been to see the poppies at Tower Bridge? No one. One person. What do you think? Pretty cool. Pretty cool, yeah. They're amazing. I think they're amazing. They're amazing. Um, and they are a monument to the British dead, 800,000 of them in World War I. But actually, many more people died <coughs> from pneumonia um, and influenza. <coughs> And the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 killed over 20 million people across the world. It came from the trenches. Servicemen who were demobilized back to their countries were taking it back with them. a zoonosis that was transmitted in the trenches. It swept across the United States, largely from the places that American troops went back to. So to Los Angeles, to Philadelphia, to New York, <coughs> and so on. <coughs> So, very common, very known, very well known. Dietary management of tuberculosis. If you're rich enough, you could go to a sanatorium. And therefore, you could find clean air. Yes? When we get a chance, could you mention a present-day instance of siege? Gaza. Sorry? Gaza. They count oh, calories. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they count calories before they put any food in. She's absolutely right. They count calories before they put food in. 
But there will be another lecture on food security where we can deal with that in, in much more, in much more, much more de detail. <clears throat> so sanatoria, clean air, good food, all of these things should help, plenty of rest, help to, to alleviate tuberculosis. When we come to the 1920s, uh, a significant piece of history happened, which was the discovery of the vi vitamins in the 1910s. I can't remember exactly when. Gowland Hopkins was, was credited with this in the UK. There was a guy in Germany, it's now Poland, called Virchow, who actually had a, a lot to do with thinking about um, vitamins uh, prior to that. Uh, but there's a lot of work on nutrition and vitamin deficiency. There were studies that, to demonstrate that something's a vitamin, you would deplete an animal model of this particular substance until they started doing something crazy. You document it, put that particular substance back, purified substance, and then those signs should disappear. That's a classical way of determining you know, whether something was a vitamin. Regrettably, huge numbers of these <coughs> studies didn't work out because animals became infected. They infected, they did lots and lots of federal experiments. Now it took uh, Clausen in the 1920s to think about, well, do these federal experiments tell us something? He started thinking about, well, infection and these vitamins actually may come together. So he started thinking about how they might come together. The other place was vitamin deficiency and resistance to infection also came hand in glove. People went into hospital if they had an operation, uh, this would then cause immunopoiesis, a decline in uh, immune status, increased susceptibility to infectious disease. But also, if somebody was undernourished and not fed in hospital, then this would also allow, allow the development of, of infectious disease. Immunology appeared in the 1950s, and to the present day, what is known about immunology as the step between all of this helps to understand the ecology of nutrition, the ecology of infection, and the kind of embodied ecology, if you will, of these relationships within, within, within a person. And then finally, Kwashiorkor, the swollen belly of children in starvation situations. Who's seen pictures of that sort of thing? Okay, everybody. You normally see those only in crisis, in places of starvation crisis these days. There's been a decline in the proportion of, of kwashiorkor relative to all malnutrition. These swollen bellies are less apparent, less often seen. The numbers, the proportions have gone down. How does kwashiorkor develop? There's a very mixed picture, and I'm going to talk about that uh, uh, very, very shortly. So to talk about marasmus and kwashiorkor, these two things. This is how, in a classical textbook, they look, which is horrible. The marasmic child is very thin, trying to get breast milk from a woman who's not able to produce, produce, uh, produce breast milk, still struggling for survival. Struggling, struggling for survival. This child you could probably mistake for being borderline okay, but this child with kwashiorkor isn't borderline okay. You see these puffed up jowls. You see a swollen abdomen. You see swollen wrists and swollen ankles. That is edema, that is water, that's extracellular fluid. Uh, infiltrating parts of the body where that, that it wouldn't usually. 
and is symptomatic of a breakdown of physiological processes. So, classically in the textbook, they have said Kwashiorkor is due to protein deficiency, Merasmus is due to energy deficiency. If only the world were that simple. If only the world were that simple. Protein is involved, and I'll talk about that. Merasmus, I would think more as being the most extreme adaptation to food non-availability that is possible. If you refeed a child with marasmus, they can recover in a few weeks. They can recover quite quickly, as much as still intact. Trying to recover a child with quashiorkor is much more difficult because many aspects of their physiology um, are, are dysfunctional. The gut may have atrophied. The, um, uh, the liver has fatty infiltrations. Um, re reversing the edema is, 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 is problematic. And a child with Koshyokor is very close to death. Very close to death. A child with Merasmus, you don't know how long they can live. But then there's something interesting that also happens. In that a child can have Merasmus for weeks, for weeks, for weeks, for weeks, and suddenly develops Koshyokor. And then there's this mid-condition, marasmic koshyoko, which really means it's a transitional state from having marasmus to being to, 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 to developing koshyoko. So you can't really think of them as being separate conditions. You can't think of them as having very easy and, and uh, uh, discrete uh, causations. <clears throat> what we know about marasmus and we know about starvation, much of it comes from detailed study in World War II, from things like the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, which was carried out at the University of Minnesota among conscientious objectors uh, who were volunteered uh, to eat half their usual amount of food for six months. And the kinds of things they found, this is just to show, this slide down here shows people in Belsen, and this is a child in, uh, in Africa, both exhibiting marasmus. That is, it's not necessarily something that just children have. Nutritional wasting is something that can happen, can happen to anybody at any time. And the reason why the Minnesota starvation experiment was carried out was because they wanted to know how to rehabilitate people effectively and quickly now that they knew about starvation across Europe and later on they found out about the existence of concentration camps. There was very pragmatic and useful <coughs> reason for carrying out that study, which I should say could never be carried out again, because ethics won't permit it. But once you know something, you can't unknow it. So I have no qualms about talking about it. Weight loss, that's obvious. Physical weakness, psychological changes, asociality, selfishness, some very weird mental stuff happens. But most importantly, people come into themselves. They become asocial. As you know, humans are a social species. Without sociality, we are nothing. And starvation brings people into themselves. They become asocial. Impaired cardiac function, loss of libido, and Im immune function impairment, all of these things. So a child with marasmus, and here's the clue, a child with marasmus has locked down 
as many physiological mechanisms as possible. Downregulating basal metabolic rate, reducing physical activity uh, through apathy, just is their surviving. The immune system is also stripped back to the basics. So the clue, and I'm giving you the answer now to Kwashiorkor, is infection. That a child with marasmus is very susceptible to infectious disease, can very quickly flip into a Kwashiorkor state through infection, and I'll show you the slides very, very shortly. Again, wartime data that shows how low you can go with body mass index. So prisoners of war, concentration camps, these are survivors. At Belson, they weighed everybody. When they came to rehabilitation, they weighed everybody before they did anything else. That sounds cruel. But it also meant they could know how low a body size could be. What are the limits of survivorship? And, and here is the bottom line. For men, it's about 13, body mass index of about 13. For women, it's a body mass index of around 11. So while we have these cutoff points of 16, 17 and a half body mass index for undernutrition, severe undernutrition, that range down there is actually quite big. And it's quite horrible. So Kwashiorkor, a complex form of undernutrition, not straightforward, and it's associated with, with infection. Child has edema, great irritability, and as I've said, maybe cause <coughs> death. The history of Kwashiorkor, first description was in Mexico in the 1860s, a long time ago. And at that time, it was associated with weaning children onto a maize meal diet. And so the thoughts were that there's something in maize that predisposes children to this condition. It was a nutritional disorder directly associated with that. When vitamins were discovered, it became niacin or B3 deficiency that seemed to be important in, in, uh, in the development of Kwashiorkor. Also at the time that it was found in communities where children were weaned onto maize meal in West Africa, in Ghana. So it was seen something that was intrinsic to that particular staple food, to consumption of maize. But you don't just find it in Mexico and in places where kids are weaned onto, onto maize meal. You know, a maize meal porridge, which is extraordinarily thin, very low in calories, very low in, in many other nutrients. That is just giving a bad name to maize, which is actually a pretty good staple when it's eaten with a lot of other things, which it is primarily in Mexico. The Mexican condition, the predisposition was poverty. That is, eating maize meal without having a, diet, a diverse diet. And Mexico, who's been to Mexico? Okay, one of the most amazing places on the planet. Truly amazing. Just for the food, truly amazing. Go, go once in your life and just enjoy the diversity. Um, there are plants, food plants, you will have never seen anywhere else on the planet. There's so much diversity in maize. It is the food basket for much of the world. It is an astonishing place. 
Go with open eyes, go to the markets, be inquisitive, ask a lot of questions and enjoy it. Not to have dietary diversity, that comes through poverty. Not to have dietary diversity that leads to kwashiorkor, extreme poverty. So all of these things are, are pretty should be medicalizing before thinking about what the social condition is. So nutritional edema has also been found in Europe. So it's not just maize meal. Cecily Williams, she was at Somerville College in Oxford, she introduced the word kwashiorkor, which was a local word, a Ghanaian word, for as a disorder of weaning. It kind of meant the disease a child got when it was deposed from the breast and a younger child went onto the breast. So it's a weaning disease. So that's what she, how, she, how, she, how she placed it. Through the 1950s, kwashiorkor continued to be high. Protein energy deficiency, the relationships between protein and energy started to be understood. And that you could actually have endogenous protein deficiency. You don't have very much in your diet and you're using muscle to obtain bodily uh, uh, protein for immune function, for example, you can have endogenous protein deficiency as well as exogenous protein deficiency. Uh, Gopalan, one of the great nutritionists of the time, questioned protein deficiency theory. This is what I'm going to show you that I'm really old because I've met Gopalan. I met him in India. Uh, <coughs> and uh, by this stage he was truly wise. Um, he didn't need to do much, the world came to him and he had to say a few words and people interpreted those words and imbued meaning in those words because he was the sage, wise old man who took on the world in terms of nutrition and said because in India we have our own nutrition science that can question some of these things. The fact is in India people live on very low protein intakes and yet Koshyoko was not so very common. You couldn't attribute it specifically to protein because there were people living on extraordinarily low protein intakes. Then we get onto immunological issues, disease issues, free radical theory in the 80s, disease theory in the 1990s. So I'll just work through that very, very quickly. What's your core? What's the complications? Um, edema, skin lesions, hair discolorations associated with staples, as I've said, like, uh, like maize, but also cassava, yam, plantain. Um, those first three have low protein content. Polished rice has low B vitamin content. Maize has low B3 content. So it's either the protein or it's the low B vitamin content or both. Often precipitated with severe infections, as I've already said. Happens with a newly weaned child. It's a matter of weaning. But of course, the time when a child's weaned is the time when they're also exposed to more infection because they're eating new foreign foods and some of those might be infected, contaminated pathologically. You can't produce an, you can't produce kwashiorkor in an animal model with a full diet that lacks a single nutrient. So if you just take away B3, you can't induce kwashiorkor. If you take away any other B other B vitamins, you can't induce kwashiorkor. You put them on a low protein diet, you can't induce kwashiorkor. None of those things individually works. So all of those ideas start to fall apart. Kids with kwashiorkor are micronutrient deficient, low serum zinc, selenium, vitamins A, vitamin E. You also find in places where people consume mouldy peanuts. Aflatoxicol is also a potential, uh, 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 it's, it's a toxin um, that can cause oxidative stress in individuals. So 
Why pregnant women are not meant to eat moldy peanuts? Well, it's, part, it's, large, it's largely because of that. In this country, you see peanuts divided up into human grade and animal grade, and it's largely because of the aflatoxins they might contain if they're animal grade, so humans should not eat them. Okay, the staple, the issue about protein, came through things like um, epidemiological or disease geography, I suppose, or nutritional geography uh, in West Africa, where, for example, on the coast people consume plantains, further in the land people consume, consume wheat, in the, in the middle belt here people consume millet, and as you go up to the top you get to, to, to pastoralist groups, and you've kind of got a protein gradient, proportion of the staple that contains protein, lowest down here, the proportion of the diet with protein is highest actually in the Sahelian region because people are pastoralists, they're consuming milk, they're consuming animal products. So the protein, protein quality is actually pretty good, the harsher it gets. And, and so kwashiorkor was a thing of the coast and associated with, with low protein staples. And that could hold until the time that it was determined that protein requirements were actually much lower than they had thought they had thought them to be in the 1940s and 1950s. When protein requirements declined threefold when they did significant physiology of protein energy relationships, they found that actually if you drop the amount of protein people need, the protein hypothesis drops out because, because actually there are a lot of people who are getting adequate protein. So actually understanding the physiology of protein metabolism was, was, uh, was important in this relationship. There were two guys, Miller and Payne. Miller was my PhD supervisor. Um, I don't know why he took me off, but I'm glad he did. Weaning onto low-protein diets more recently has started to emerge in the West in a quite peculiar fashion. When I was in Cambridge in the 1990s, there was a child that presented with something strange, and one of my colleagues, Peter Lunn, um, uh, who was an expert on kwashiorkor, looked at this child and said, this child has kwashiorkor. This child was fed Coca-Cola and potato chips. Wouldn't eat anything else. It was weaned onto those things and developed protein deficiency. Of course, in winter in this country, everybody gets a cough, everybody gets an infection. This child got infected, developed kwashiorkor in Cambridge, UK. Kids in Philadelphia in the United States. Who's from Philly? You're from Philly. Okay. Uh, don't knock Philly. It's a good place. Kids in Philadelphia weaned onto this thing, rice dream. Who's heard of rice dream? Okay. As a milk, organic, non-dairy alternative to milk made from rice. That's on the cover. Okay. Is it an alternative to milk? Well, if you give this to young children, they are actually not getting the kind of protein they should be as young children. So kids have developed kwashiorkor in Philadelphia, but also in Australia, other places, because of weaning onto something like this. Of course, they have changed their packaging. It was never intended. It happened. It really was not intended, but it happened. Okay, the other thing that, that, that complicates things is the protein cost of infection, uh, which is actually extraordinarily high. 
And these are not factored into dietary requirements. That dietary requirements have de declined. The additional protein cost of infection in infants can be as high as 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. That is <coughs> double their daily protein requirement as a consequence of infection. That's the amount of protein that needs to be dumped into the immune system to be able to amount uh, a healthy, well-nourished level of immune response. Huge amount of protein. And that has to come from somewhere. So endogenous protein deficiency can happen because protein is diverted from muscle to the immune system because the most important thing physiologically for a young child is to stay alive. Muscle can wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow may be a better day. Today, I am dying of infection. So there's a prioritization. So demand can be met from diet, but the diet doesn't have it. Because metabolism of skeletal muscle, metab metabolic diversion of nutrients. So the levels can be extraordinarily high. This is on, on SharePoint, just to give you an idea of how much the increases of acute phase proteins in infection. In 48 hours, thousandfold increase in C-reactive protein, thousandfold increase in serum amyloid A. It's dramatic. All of this work is happening in a child that's hardly moving. But the physiology is responding, the immunology is responding, and the demand needs to be met from, from somewhere. So, <coughs> Michael Golden is also somebody I know. I, I was at a talk in Australia once, and his son came up, he was in the audience. Very, very good thinker, amazing thinker, who developed the multiple hit model of Kwashiorkor. At the time, there was a multi hit model of cancer that actually there could be a, there's a predisposition, and then there are factors that will then, will, will then trigger cancers. So he felt about it in the same way. The predisposition is dietary. Low protein diet, very low protein diet, a diet low in micronutrients. You could have a child that stops growing, uh, shows weight loss and so on, and will just develop stunting and wasting, marasmus. But something else needs to come along to be able to trigger, uh, trigger the washerful. And that is usually infection, aflatoxins, these kinds of things. So lots of predisposing factors, but there needs to be something that sets a child into, into Koshyokon. Golden went on to talk about the free radical model, that actually infections, aflatoxins, result in free radical initiation, um, absence of uh, in, in, insufficiencies of, of uh, uh, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin C, of, um, of, of protein, of B, B1, B3, and so on. All of them lead to inadequate protection from free radicals at cellular level and inadequate repair if there's protein deficiency. Glutathione is the major system. It's a tripeptide. It requires protein to be able to, to, to scavenge free radicals. So leaky membranes, edema, mitochondrial damage, fatty liver, pigment bleaching, dyspigmentation, all the classical signs of Kwashiorkor could be attributed to free radicals ultimately, wherever they come from. But actually, um, the aflatoxins are causing free radical damage. Um, the absence of vitamin A, E, and C are cofactors in enzyme systems that scavenge free radicals. There's a whole, you know, so you could put it all together in that way. Anything that fits into this model could be fit into a model of Kwashiorkor, whether it's in Europe, whether it's India, whether it's in, in, in Mexico, wherever it might be. 
Okay, I'll leave that and just go on to the life course. Okay, who's heard of the vicious cycle of undernutrition and infection? Three or four people. Five, six. Hands go up. And this is the relationship between inadequate dietary intake and disease, that a child is born, if they're breastfed, they're fine, they'll get to an age of maybe around six months, where if they're not getting anything else, they then have inadequate dietary intake, there'll be then weight loss, growth faltering, impaired immunity, disease, rears its ugly head, increased incidence, duration, severity, feeds back on growth faltering, impaired immunity, mucosal damage, disease can cause malabsorption, metabolic change, increased metabolic rate, for example, uh, loss of appetite, anorexia, which leads to inadequate dietary intake. Now, this is not a vicious cycle. It's a vicious corkscrew because it takes place in time. Time and the life course is an important element in this. This could start with disease or it could start with inadequate dietary intake. Once it starts, it starts to corkscrew around. And this is a, an example of one Guatemalan child uh, who went through a cycle of undernutrition, infection and poor growth. For the first six months of life, upper respiratory infections, diarrheal infections don't seem to knock the growth of that child. If they're breastfeeding, it's breast milk is protective in a very, very significant way, immunologically, development of the, of the gut and so on. Uh, but after that time, introduce, uh, introduction of solid foods then also introduces potential for infection. And then that child's growth seems to fall off from the American normative 50th percentile. Forever, forever, who knows it forever. What are the potential outcomes? The potential outcomes are smaller body size, Small but healthy, ultimately. Uh, there was a, an economist called David Sekla who argued for small but healthy in India. Small body size was adaptive, but he never took into account the cost, it, the cost of becoming small, which is actually infection in childhood and high mortality in childhood. He didn't take that into account. So that corkscrew of undernutrition and infection starts in this case from around six months of age, and there you are, repeated episodes of infection, undernutrition, which is Im Im impacting on the growth of child, immunological impairment, and on and on and on it goes. Until you get to an age where more or less a child is immunologically mature and is more resistant to infection, is no longer so bound by the house, for example, so they're close to other, uh, other small children and so on. <coughs> in Infants in childhood. Breastfeeding is something that is social, cultural, and the duration of breastfeeding varies. The timing of introduction of dietary supplementation varies from place to place. It's affected by modernization, it's affected by commercialization, and it has a significant impact on uh, the health. Uh, of, of, of young children. <coughs> Immune system maturation. Some of you have already seen this slide, some of you haven't. But it just illustrates that this period of breastfeeding is something that compensates for immune system immaturity in the young child. So this is the child. IgA, IgM, IgG, all of these things developmentally immature. Because of course, as we know, a child, relative, a human child, relative to other species, is born developmentally immature, relative to other species, to allow for, for encephalization. And at birth, 
Breastfeeding is something that to a large extent compensates for immune system immaturity. The end of the nutrition-infection interaction cycle really comes maybe about by the age of six years or so because that's when these immune system, the, these aspects of the immune system are comparatively mature. They approach adult levels. Ah, no teeth. I'll just get back onto that one because I like this slide. I made it. I, I put the word teeth in there as well. Just in grammar. Teeth and Papua New Guinea. Uh, this, is, this is something that I did. And other people have done similar stuff. But this is in Papua New Guinea. And this chart shows Anga, is a group of people I was working with. And they uh, have delayed emergence of primary dentition. A deciduous dentition, first teeth you get. So what you say? You can't eat without teeth, right? Try sucking your food. Spend a day just sucking your food. Just spend a day working out how you can how you can avoid using your teeth. Try it and see how hard it is. Then you'll know what it's like to be a toothless pensioner. Okay? It's probably worth trying once. Um, blog about it. Up to you. <coughs> Don't say I don't give you things to do. Okay, okay this is the under. Okay, what it shows is that this is mean age of emergence. The first teeth emerge a good month later than Western standards. Later teeth emerge a good two months later. And on the under, a child is meant to show normal development. They kind of crawl around, and at some stage they can sit up. Become a man. And then kids grab all kinds of things and, you know, put them in the mouth. But, you know, you don't do that because they can't actually suck a piece of sweet potato to get enough nutrition out of it. Again, try sucking a piece of sweet potato. Another little experiment. Try sucking it without using your teeth. It takes a long time to get some nutrition out of it, especially if it's roasted. So a child is given solid foods, adult foods, from the time the first teeth emerge. Just the late tooth emerging, because these children are undernourished, because their mothers are undernourished, have delayed onset of, of their first dentition, they have a delay in the onset of eating solid foods because their first teeth arrive late. So just by virtue of those things, you get late, uh, late, introduction, of, uh, late introduction of solid foods. <coughs> As a general principle, there's a whole range of diseases and disease categories that affect nutritional status. There are a range of diseases and disease categories that influence that are influenced by nutritional status. There are immune nutritional deficiencies that inhibit immune system function, and there are diseases that inhibit immune system function. If you think about these things in those particular categories, you will not go wrong, because it covers every aspect of this undernutrition infection relationship. Um, the, the type of disease affects immune system function. Nutrition affects immune system uh, function. Diseases are influenced by nutritional status. Everything goes round and round. But the diseases have different effects in different countries. Why would that be? Different levels. 
different kinds of malnutrition, uh, different types of infection, that respiratory infection is going to be different pathogens in different countries, that even when you have two countries like the Gambia and Uganda, exactly the same uh, study design showed that the effects on the growth of the child are much greater in the Gambia with diarrhea <coughs> than they are in Uganda, much greater from fevers uh, in Gambia than Uganda. Both in Africa, but very different disease ecologies. They're actually teasing apart what causes this nutritional stunting, um, nutrition infection stunting, is problematic because the disease ecology is different in, in different places. Then, of course, you have, all I want to say from this slide is that on top of this nutrition infection set of relationships, you also have a number of things that are superimposed on that. Patterns of childcare, illness management in the, in the family, um, local conditions like climate, medical care provision, patterns of uh, 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 levels of food availability, type of food availability that feeds back onto this nutrition infection set of relationships. AIDS and HIV. HIV, chance born HIV positive. This is a predisposition to, to undernutrition. That this is a classic slide from Haiti showing that a child born, children born uh, with uh, HIV positive start to decline in their growth pattern pretty well from pretty well from birth. That this can also change the disease ecology because children are born HIV positive, then they it's not just that they have this infection, they have susceptibility to other infections. This increases the prevalence of different diseases in that community, so increases the susceptibility to, to the predisposition to those diseases among everybody else's in those communities. So it's not neutral, it is part of an ecology, it changes the, it changes the uh, susceptibility. Okay, I've talked about children. Later on in the life course, adults are usually immunological mature. This is Papua New Guinea. These are some anger guys who are dressed up for a Saturday night. And that's an old Anga guy. How old do you think that man is? You know it's a trick question, of course you do. So give me the right answer. 30. You, yeah, it's in the right direction. He said, yeah, he's younger than I am. Um, he, would, he would be, he's in his early 40s. Yeah. Okay. Younger than I am. And for the record, I'm 60. No. <laughs> <laughs> Flatter. <laughs> Later on in the life course, there are other things that go on. And I want to introduce an idea that my mate Claudio Franceschi put in the literature in the year 2000. Um, Claudio's daughter is a medical anthropologist, <coughs> and she's going to be here, here for six months, starting, starting late February next year. So and we get the chance to meet her. She's lovely. As is Claudia. He's totally outrageous, but lovely. Uh, the idea of inflammation, inflam-aging, upregulation of inflammatory response at older ages, in the absence of an acute, apparent acute infection. So exposure to low-grade infections at older ages can lead to inflammation. So oxidative metabolism, all the things I talked about, inflammation repair, all of these things, in response to an antigenic load which is high in a place like Papua New Guinea, uh, leads to a uh, 
predisposition to early, uh, early senescence and early immune senescence. This also happens in a much more dramatic fashion with respect to HIV disease, HIV and infection. So very, very briefly, um, that accelerated aging, viral replication results in release of virions, infectious and non-infectious HIV into circulation. Um, this activates immune cells despite highly active antiretroviral therapy. This alters T-cell homeostasis, immune activation due to circulating antigens, um, then is the, leads to senescence. Activated cells undergo clonal expansion. So you have um, <coughs> senescent T-cells, premature aging, all of these relating to um, uh, you know, changes, in, changes in physiology which are, are seen outwardly, but also increased predisposition to chronic disease and infectious disease. The things that kill old people are actually all to do with, with uh, uh, immuno, immunosenescence. Now, Claudio is very keen on this because he's entering into this into his age group. Uh, two more slides and I shall finish. HIV infection, antiretroviral therapy and hunger. Uh, HIV positive people have a need for greater caloric intake because there's an increase in dietary requirements, individuals have greater nutritional deficiencies, suppresses the immune system, hastens the disease progression. ARTs, antiretroviral therapy, increases resting energy expenditure, um, but also um, when people begin it, viral loads decrease, immune systems recover, the inflammatory response subsides, and then um, the anorexia that goes with the inflammatory response declines, and so people develop a hunger. So previously, people who were previously starving to death without feeling it could feel the physiological basis of, of hunger with ARTs. One thing about thinking about undernutrition infection and uh, undernutrition infection and immunology and its life course interactions is that it's not one thing. <clears throat> Wasting is common to a number of different circumstances. The one that I've talked about today is protein energy malnutrition. It's also associated with the wasting, the cachexia um, that goes with, with cancer, that goes with AIDS, goes with tuberculosis. It's also part of the process of of sarcopenia muscle loss that goes with that goes with aging. Part of the sepsis that goes with injury, inflammation from infection. So we have uh, a stress <coughs> stress response, um, insulin resistance, energy expenditure and energy intake, exercise and physical activity, uh, muscle type, muscle activity, and immunological response. The relative strength of these responses varies, and sometimes, of course, you could have these things coming together. Take a young child, well, protein energy malnutrition. An individual who is HIV positive, as TB, then you have protein energy malnutrition and TB. The two models start to work synergistically. Um, an old person who may not have enough food to eat, who has TB, you find three of these things coming together. So, this is not a discrete model, it's a way of thinking about how protein energy malnutrition might work ecologically in different circumstances. What is recruited in the set of relationships is different uh, in, in, in different contexts. But you can look at that and you can, you can, you can work it out uh, in your own time. 
Nutritional deficiency, micronutrient deficiencies, whole range of specific micronutrients that are, are related to disease. This is just one chart that shows multiple micronutrients that are involved in the inflammatory response. So we can look at iron, which is involved in, in, in four immunological systems, vitamin B12, which is involved in, in four immunological systems, B6, which is involved in, in two immunological, three immunological systems. B6, pyridoxin, isn't usually thought of in terms of nutrition deficiencies. It's actually quite powerful and important. Thinking about nutrition-infection interactions changes the way that we think about specific nutrients because it's not just about the specific deficiency, like vitamin C deficiency causes scurvy in the textbook. And none of us sail um, on long voyages needing barrels full of limes to be able to survive those long voyages. And when nutrition's moved on, we're all globalised now. So it's unlikely we'll ever see scurvy on big ships going around the planet anymore. But vitamin C deficiency is certainly, as we see in this chart, involved in three aspects of, of, of the immune system. So we have to think about them differently. Their relative importance is different in relation to susceptibility to infections. Those are the, those are the, uh, those are the important things. Okay, I've got one minute. I'm going to show you lots of pretty pictures. Okay, I'm not going to talk about the slide. Just leave you to go through it. But it gives, I just threw this together last night, so it's not, not proper in any, in any published sense. I'm just kind of thinking about what are the guiding principles for thinking about disease, nutrition, the life course, and societal processes. It's not perfect, it's not right. I've got some examples about endemic disease, seasonal disease, epidemic disease, emerging disease, interactions between diseases, nutrition, baseline food availability, seasonality of food, food care for victims, baseline illness food care, meeting a new dietary requirements, and then what it means across different parts of the life course. Just take a look at that. Tell me what you disagree with, because I'd like to do better next time. Okay? Um, so pictures, Papua New Guinea, water, diet, sanitation. This is a place uh, where, <coughs> among all the other problems, water and sanitation is a problem. Now, this is Nepal. That's the Annapurna Ranges in the hills so that's just coming out of Kathmandu Airport. Water, water everywhere. Seasonality, this is during the, the wet season when people are planting rice. You can see the stagnant water. That tells you straight away that actually anything to do with vector-borne illness is going to be seasonal in relation to uh, that time of year where people are planting rice. Later on in the year, this is important. Seasonal malaria, seasonal other kinds of arthropod-borne infections. The fact that people all come together and plant those terraces at the same time of year means that diarrheal infection is also going to be greater, not just because there's a lot of water, but also because people are close together, living in close proximity. Under the kind of work stress you are under, that is your time limited, you've got to do the job so other things disappear because you need to just do the job of planting this. If you don't do that, next year's food is being jeopardised. So, um, seasonality is important. Okay, just for your edification, two types of faeces. Wet runny faeces, bloody faeces, I've talked about them to some people in the previous lecture. And where one defecates, how one defecates, one should not on a path, there are particular places where one does. Sanitary conditions uh, can decline at particular times of year. This is Dafka, Bangladesh, uh, which shows just uh, uh, one particular, not particular poor part of a part of Dhaka. There's a stand well there, people using the stand pump, getting water from it. 
place where the water gets contaminated is when they put water in this jug, they put a plate on top of it so it doesn't spill as you carry it to the house. Put the plate down somewhere, it's contaminated. You put it on top, you contaminated your water before it gets home. The best single thing that seems to be helpful in terms, of, in terms of improving water supply is actually having your own tap in the house and being able to look after it personally. Um, there's a significant literature on that, and we can talk some more. But overriding it, the most important thing is, under nutrition protection is qualified by a whole range of things. Poverty, inequality, crowding, sanitary conditions, vector-borne infections, physical contact. But the elephant in the room is structural violence. That is the poverty that people, people live under and the constraints that stop them moving out of those particular conditions. Thank you.